invite you to turn in the Word of God to Philippians chapter 4. We are continuing our series. If you're visiting this morning, you should know we've been in a series looking at the thought life of Christian disciples. How are we called to think? And what do we draw upon when we consider how to imitate some of the virtues that are held up in Scripture? And for some weeks, we've been looking at a list of thought-worthy things in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. I imagine by now the passage is becoming very familiar to you. I imagine some of the children have perhaps unintentionally memorized it. That is good and somewhat by design to linger on one of these key portions of Scripture. All the same, hear together with me the word of the Lord, verse 8 of Philippians 4. Finally, brothers, whatever is true... Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time. Father in heaven, you speak and we listen. We ask that you give us open ears not only the physical stamina to pay attention to your word, but what's more, open our hearts and give us understanding by your spirit that we should not only desire to believe these things, but to act upon them. Our Lord, we desire these things in order that you would be glorified. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our previous sermon we began to look at the term in this passage, just, just, whatever is just. And we focused last week on the essence of righteousness or justice. We saw that according to the Bible, our only sound authority for making rulings on justice, according to the Bible, that which is righteous and just is that which is agreeable morally and spiritually with God's own nature and will, particularly for human beings. And so we have to go to the word and let the word guide us in what we take for justice. And we concluded on a fact. We concluded on a fact that is often overlooked in contemporary discussions about righteousness and justice. If justice is rendering to each their due, then true concern for justice has to begin with a concern for God's due. It can't begin with us, or we just make a greater mess of everything. It begins rightly with what is owed to the Lord. And yet, the reality is none of us remotely approach that standard of righteousness. Isaiah 64, verse 6, and I quote it from the venerable King James Version. This was the version I grew up hearing, and these are the, the words, is they stick in my mind. But we all are as an unclean thing. And all our righteousness are as filthy rags. And we all do fade as a leaf. And our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. So much for human justice, apart from reconciliation with the Lord. You cannot find a righteousness of yourself. And that's where the gospel enters in and says that there is another way of righteousness and justice, one that begins with the righteousness of Christ counted freely to you. 
That through faith alone, we are counted in God's sight, united forever with Christ. And so we are counted just. As it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. But this is where that word become brings us back to Philippians chapter 4 to verse 9. Because in calling us into Christ, the purpose is not simply so that we can think about our justification. We start there, we stay there, but that becomes the platform on which we are able to live in a way that pleases the Lord. Our imperfect strivings are nevertheless counted delightful. They are received as gratitude in God's sight and are clean. And he calls us out of that into practice. You see in verse 9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. And our passage here, one of those things we are called to practice is righteousness, justice. We saw last week that word can be, depending on context, translated both ways. It is to live in the way that pleases the Lord. Now, where do we actually go to glean our ideas about what that looks like? It's one thing to say that we're called to love God and to love our neighbor, but then you ask 10 people out on the street what that looks like, and you're going to get a lot of different answers what it looks like to love God and your neighbor. And so I want to lay before you this morning two especially worthy witnesses. Two especially worthy witnesses. And I speak these things in particular, not exclusively, but in particular, knowing that we have many covenant youth and many younger people here. I am fully aware the Bible is a big book and you can find all kinds of things in the Bible that will speak to you about the justice to which we're called. Lord willing, next week we'll look at a few people in particular. But I also am aware of parts of the Bible that are sometimes neglected, especially by the young. And so I want to lay before you these two worthy witnesses. First, the precepts contained in the law, and then seeing how they're applied in the prophets. We're going to look briefly at each of these. I want you to come away from this with a sense When I pick up my Bible, if I want to understand what it looks like to live a righteous life, a life of faith, these are places I'm going to go. Now, why the Old Testament? Why the Old Testament? It's not to the exclusion of the new. On some level, I'm well aware by personal experience of my own, as well as familiarity with many of you. The New Testament is just much more familiar. A lot of it is much more easy to engage. Some of the books are very short, and so we read them, and they are interspersed with so much really clear gospel content. It just, it's floating there, right on the top, everywhere. But on the other hand, we cannot neglect the Old Testament, especially as we form our idea of justice and righteousness. Listen to what Paul says, Romans 7, verse 12. Indeed, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. It has to be used rightly. It cannot be used to justify ourselves. But it's righteous, and the Bible then confirms we can go to the law to see a good picture. What does our human conduct look like in God's sight if it should please him? Or Jesus, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 and 18, he says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them. 
but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. The new covenant did not reach down and rip out the Old Testament and put in a New Testament. Though it is true, many people grew up where they have, say, a New Testament only with the Psalms and the Proverbs in there, and that may be the only Bible they really pick up very often. Jesus did not come to tear away everything God had said before to us. Rather, what the New Covenant does is abrogate the ceremonies, the ritual ceremonies, civil laws attached directly to Israel's place and time, but the principles, the moral principles, abide. Hear what our own Belgian Confession says, Article 25. The truth and substance of these things remain for us in Jesus Christ, in whom they have been fulfilled. Nevertheless, we continue to use the witnesses drawn from the law and the prophets to confirm us in the gospel and to regulate our lives with full integrity for the glory of God according to his will. Not simply to find symbols, foreshadowings, prophecies of the coming of Christ and his work, but to regulate our lives. I won't ask you, especially youth, to raise your hand, but I would be curious to know. To what extent do you seek to know God's will for your life from the Old Testament? Have you studied it? Where would you even go? And so, first, this is the first of two main headings. I would encourage you to meditate upon the precepts contained in the Old Testament law, especially, not exclusive, but especially the book of Deuteronomy. Now, sometimes the first five books of Moses are referred to as the law. Sometimes the word law is used to describe the entire Old Testament. But sometimes it's specifically referring to Deuteronomy. And I would lay before you a particular interest on that for a few reasons. First, you have a second giving of the law. In fact, that's what Deuteronomy means, second law. You have the Ten Commandments contained in Deuteronomy 5. But then throughout Deuteronomy, you have passages that kind of put flesh on those bones. So you have the command, the Eighth Command, do not steal. But then you have places in Deuteronomy where God has seen fit to clarify to us what that actually looks like. So, for instance, turn with me and look at Deuteronomy 25, verse 13. Deuteronomy 25, verse 13. You shall not have in your bag two kinds of weights, a large and a small. You shall not have in your house two kinds of measures, a large and a small. A full and a fair weight you shall have, a full and fair measure you shall have, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. For all who do such things, all who act dishonestly, are an abomination to the Lord your God. Here it's speaking of the way that you conduct your business, that you are fair and square that you're not performing sleight of hand and swapping in the lighter weight when it's for your advantage. You think of the scales that people used to, and some places do, purchase in the marketplace. They've got you know, a big pile of lima beans or whatever they're buying that day. And you drop the weight on the other side, figure out, is this fair? So out comes 
the wrong weight when you want the deal, and out comes the extra heavy weight when somebody else is buying from you. The Lord says, you want your days in the land to be long? On the one level, if you live this way, as the covenant people of God, Israel in the land, was warned, if you continue in this habit, if the nation becomes characterized by this sin, I will expel you from the land. That is part of being under the old covenant. In a bigger picture, however, if you continue to live in unrepentance, you show yourself not to be a believer. Wherever Christ's spirit dwells, he works repentance. And so to be characteristically unrepentant of this or any of the sins is to not have a place in that eternal land. Deuteronomy 24, look at verse 14. Go back one chapter. Do not take advantage of a hired man who is poor and needy, whether he is a brother Israelite or an alien living in one of your towns. There are different ways people have understood this. I would suggest to you that simply because the brother is really in need and will settle for anything does not mean give him poor wages. Verse 17, do not deprive the alien or the fatherless of justice Or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. The cloak of the widow as a pledge is unfamiliar to us now, but through much of history and in some places today, a person only has one garment, really. They have their suit of clothes, and then they have one jacket, which doubles as their blanket. It's really a a cloak. And so imagine a person comes to you, and they are so poor, that is all they have, and they ask if they can borrow something, and you take as the guarantee that they will pay you back, you take the only means they have to stay warm. It's, it's an imperfect comparison, but imagine you have somebody who is diabetic and they need their insulin every several hours, and they, they have, that's all their insulin, and you say, I'm going to hold on to your insulin while you give them a loan for something worth far less. There is a call to an open-handedness that you find throughout the book of Deuteronomy where it says, the Lord says, I do not desire that there would be any poor in your land, he says in one place, but then he says, there shall always be poor in your land and therefore deal open-handedly with them. That calls for balance. The same book of Deuteronomy despises idleness. And this is one of the challenges. The Bible does not lay things for us in every sense so easily and clearly. We're called to meditate. For you who are younger, some of the best advice I can give you, start early. Think hard now. Some of these issues will take decades for you to reach firm conclusions of your own about. In terms of how do we actually live out the things that we're called to. But as you go through the book, so many more examples could be given. For instance, there are laws that God gave where, remember at that time, you have lots of people who have a place on their roof pre-air conditioning, a place on their roof where they would hang out. People have animals down below, then they'd have a chamber where others are sleeping up above, and then you can go up on the roof if it's a real hot time of the year, or you just want to look around. If someone falls off your roof and you didn't have a perimeter around it, you have different consequences than if you did. These are principles of wisdom about not being negligent, And we should go into God's law. He didn't put it there just to create a picture of Christ who is to come that we then forget about. The best thing that we can do then as we meditate is to 
take time to be in the law. The present point, again, is not to elaborate this too much, but just to exhort you. And it's, it's not a mere recommendation. It is a strong exhortation. Read Deuteronomy. It is a grief to me to... I, I don't... I'm not going to tell you how often you have to read or any of those things. But I have done informal queries and found that probably most persons in our church do not read more than one or two of the books of Moses every few years. This should not be. I will not tell you how much entertainment you're allowed to have in your life. You have your own conscience. But why is it that he has put treasure in our hands, I think we know because it's, it can be hard. Meditation is hard. This is not the emptying your mind. This is very much filling your mind with the truth of the Lord. But we are called then to go to the law. There's a second source of meditation and imitation worthy material that I would encourage you to take up, and that is to look at how justice and righteousness are applied in the prophets. And in particular, I'm going to recommend one, Amos. One of the reasons why I'd recommend Amos is because it's shorter. And you can start there and get a flavor for this. Another reason is because justice and righteousness are so obviously interwoven as a theme throughout the book. In fact, turn with me and look at Amos chapter 5 in your Bibles. This is among the minor prophets, so it's towards the end of the Old Testament. Children, you should know, or I should say, it will be good for you to know. I don't expect that you know this. In addition to telling us about Jesus who was to come, you know, they were prophesying, these Old Testament prophets, about things which would come centuries later. But most of what they did was prosecuting God's covenant in their time. That is, going to God's people and saying, this is what God has called you to. Come back, worship him, repent, lay your faith in him. And so they're kind of prosecutors, these prophets. And Amos certainly is among them, calling the people back to their responsibilities. And verse 21 of chapter 5 begins a section where he is confronting, the Lord through Amos is confronting wealthy professors of the faith who have given very generously to the religious system. Verse 21 says, the Lord speaking, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. We had such a wonderful first service this morning, a solemn assembly, and imagine, though I don't think this is true at all, Imagine if the Lord came after, sent his prophet, and said, I did not enjoy that. Uh Uh-oh. Why? Why did you not enjoy? Didn't we sing? Didn't we praise? Weren't we smiling? And Lord, some brought gifts for you. Some, perhaps, quite a bit of, of money. And that represents time and effort, expertise. Verse 22 Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. 
But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. The people who are called by his name in order to live out a righteousness of faith, we saw last week, Abraham was commanded to charge the covenant people descended from him to do justice and righteousness in faith. What does it mean for them to give material things that God in himself doesn't need if they neglect the weightier things? Now, what had they been doing? You'd have to read all of Amos to get a really clear picture of this. Among other things, it says, for instance, in Amos chapter 8, verse 6, that they had sold the poor for a pair of sandals. My best guess, there are a number of interpretations, is that for a debt so small as would buy sandals, a person was being sold into indefinite servitude. And so there's no mercy for persons in this situation. It says that they were being given in the same passage that the poor were being fed with the chaff while the rich had abundance. Amos 6, verse 6, if you turn over and look there, Amos 6, verse 6, they drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. I want to be clear. I don't believe that the problem here that the Lord is addressing is inequality of possessions. That's not the issue. The Bible presumes that there is going to be an abiding difference in possessions, And in fact, in some ways, it approves of it. You have Jesus telling the parable of talents, where there can be a difference in outcome, where there are differences in skill and effort. But hear what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 11, to bring in Deuteronomy again. There will always be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your brothers and toward the poor and needy of your land. And Leviticus 19.15, do not pervert justice, do not show partiality either to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbors fairly. The issue was not, I believe, inequality of possessions. The issue was inequality of humanity, that some people, because they had abundance, wrongfully concluded that other people were less worthy of the dignity which God, by grace, confers upon humans as his image bearers. If God, by grace, has chosen to count others humans and to call them towards himself, you don't have a right to diminish their rights. This is one of the foundation stones of what came to be called Western society, but really it has it's owned by all the world where Christ is owned. It's the understanding that justice begins with God willing to confer rights. They aren't something that we conferred on one another or else they can be taken away. But God, having conferred upon all his image bearers a certain dignity, He then takes interest in their well-being, calls us to do the same. That's one of the significant points, I think, that you pick up as you read Deuteronomy and as you read the prophets. Justice is, and I can't overstate this, justice is not simply not 
going out of your way to violate someone. It's not only that, but it is a regard for, in some cases, people who have been taken advantage of, wishing to come alongside of them. One passage which speaks to this, Deuteronomy 10, verse 17. For the Lord your God is a God of gods and a Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Therefore, love the sojourner, for you too were sojourners in the land of Egypt. God, in a sense we might say, did not owe the Jews deliverance in that generation or another, other than that he covenanted to show mercy. And justice, on the one hand, was bringing judgment against those oppressors, the Egyptians, but it was also taking concern for those who were being defrauded and oppressed. And the Lord would call us into that. He calls us into that as people who have received even better. No one of us here, to my knowledge, was enslaved in Egypt. But having been united with Christ, the true Israel, having been grafted into the Israel of God, according to Romans 11, their story is our story. That's not other people. They are my people. They are your people. We were enslaved. We were in bondage. We were oppressed. When I read the Old Testament, those are my people. And what's more than all of the physical, political, social, all of that oppression is the oppression wrought by sin. When we were enslaved to sin, the Lord had mercy. Perfect justice, you might have expected, would have been to just come down with the sword against each one of us. In grace, he chose to visit that justice upon himself. The debt must be paid. But having received mercy, then we are called to show mercy towards others. That should animate the way that we desire to live righteously in the world. So finally, as I've exhorted you already, dig into the Old Testament, into the law in particular. And it is not easy. You covenant youth here, there are parts in Deuteronomy, where you will raise your eyebrows and go, what is this even talking about? And we would be happy to speak with you. There's not a question you can raise that it has not been tread ten thousands of times. The Lord will speak. There are books I could recommend to people of any age, but David never had any of those books. And so while they are beneficial, mostly I call you to meditate. I leave you with this and then we'll pray. Hear these words from Psalm 119. King David says, Psalm 119, verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. If you don't keep them, you don't understand it. That's foolish. 
But if you meditate in order by the Spirit's help to keep, you will grow and grow in understanding about righteousness and justice. Let's ask the Lord to help us with that even now. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for calling us to be your image bearers. Other creatures are beautiful and wonderful in so many ways. By their colors, by the sounds they make, how they feel. Yet all of them pale in comparison to the high privilege you have given to us who are capable of communion with you. Who are able to consider that we were made for an everlasting life. And we ask that in this short mortal life that you set before us as your stewards and ambassadors, that you would help us please more and more to long to bear Christ's presence in the world for your glory. We pray that in doing so, we would not leave people with a sense of self-righteousness, but that we would tell them all of this comes from us out of gratitude. For in Jesus' name, God's people pray. Amen.